Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Spark Parade, where I chat to people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. And who am I? Adam Unz, that's who. Thank you for joining me again. This week, I got chatting to singer-songwriter Owen Duff about a couple of great topics, because his passion for art simply could not be limited to one topic, and I refuse to stifle him. Does that make me a hero? That's not for me to say. You decide. So, Owen wanted to talk about a Joni Mitchell album called The Hissing of Summer Lawns, and also a film called Don't Look Now, which is a personal favorite of mine as well. All of that is coming up very soon, but first, I want to talk about the miracle of libraries. What's so miraculous about a library, you say? Well, let me tell you. Libraries provide a world of entertainment and information for free. I know that's pretty obvious, but it's also very, very, very important. In a world that's becoming less equitable by the second, or at least that's the way it seems to me, the egalitarian principles behind libraries really stand out. Anyone can access them. Anyone. For free. And in a time when free access to the arts is extremely limited, a place that lends you books and music and films for free is such a gift. I walked past one in Manhattan the other day and I saw signs asking for support and listing all the services they provide. And there were so many events with authors and politicians, film screenings, concerts, uh, classes, all different kinds of classes, after school programs for kids, help with taxes and healthcare and a million other topics. And then coincidentally, I got home on the same day and I had an email from the Queen's library system asking for help as well. Libraries are constantly strained and underfunded and the world would be a much poorer place without them because at their core, libraries are about learning and reading and everyone in the world deserves to feel the joy of discovery and the simple pleasure of reading or of being read to. So in summary... Visit your local library, will ya? Throw some cash at them if you can, but if not, just patronize them. They're a resource that deserves our love. Wasn't that a cute little commercial for the library system? That's basically what it was, right? You're welcome, the library. It was truly my pleasure. Okay, now I think we've all had quite enough of my waffling, so let's move swiftly along to my chat with Owen Duff about the hissing of summer lawns and don't look now. The first order of business 
the first yeah. topic, I think, is the hissing of summer lawns. Great. I actually have the vinyl right in front of me. Good. So, Joni Mitchell, generally, do you remember... Are you Back, back up, back up. So, when you first became aware of this album, were you already a Joni Mitchell fan? Yeah, so I... The way I came to Joni Mitchell's music was um, I used to make mixtapes for a friend of mine at school from probably the age of about 14 to 16. Um, And I used to, as part of making my mixtapes, I would raid my parents' record collection. And so, yeah, I think it was mainly my dad's actually. So he had like Neil Young and Crosby, Stills and Nash and maybe Stevie Wonder and all these people. And he and my mum had a number of uh, Joni Mitchell records, which I sort of, I started playing through to get tracks to put on these mixtapes and then kind of got into them. And then the one that I really, that got its hooks into me, first of all, was Blue, which Mm -hmm. is the one that kind of everybody consistently that sort of seems to have lasted more than any of the other albums that she's made which i think is kind of a shame in a way because although it is an amazing album she did 10 years of albums at that level one a year and i think that is just one kind of side of of her output and i think there's a lot more she was so kind of diverse and so did so many explorations that i think there's loads of stuff that just isn't kind of talked about as much Um, but certainly blue i remember listening to i think i had I've got this connection weirdly with um, the My Own Private Idaho, the Gus Van Sant film, because mm-hmm. I think I had stayed up late, probably I was about 15, and I used to scan the like TV guide for anything that had any kind of gay uh, <laughs> like content. Standard. <laughs> it was funny because, standard. Yeah, but it was funny because there was this gardening program that was on regularly with this presenter who had the weirdest name. Her name was Gay Search. (laughs) So every time you would go to the TV guide, you'd be like, fucking gardening program again. But anyway, I had stayed up late one night to watch my own private Idaho with the sound really low down. And then afterwards, I got into this habit of going into the front room and playing records really quiet and i remember playing blue all the way through after watching my own private idaho and there is a bit of a link sonically because in one of the songs on blue there's a pedal steel i think it's california and it's that particular like kind of almost cheesy country pedal steel sound that they also use in the soundtrack to my own private idaho so i think yeah and for me as a teenager like i think that's the thing that she is known for and that's what blue is is this very kind of an exploration of kind of romantic relationships and it's very emotional and certainly for me at that time i was you know 15 and feeling all these big feelings for the first time and that album really spoke to me then but then I sort of went through the other records that um, my folks had and really liked all of them and found something interesting about all of them Um, but as you got further through the 70s like she started to move away from that more romantic kind of uh, songwriting or that kind of more emotionally expressive kind of music towards something just weirder and something that I didn't really understand but I knew I kind of liked it. And I think, yeah, I remember sort of listening to the hissing of summer lawns and feeling the first time feeling a bit like, well, where did the, where did the melodies go? Because it's very kind of opaque musically and the harmonies are very weird and the textures are very weird. And it just 
wasn't like anything I'd heard before. And similarly, the lyrics, like she'd done this kind of complete uh, 180 almost because she is writing very personally in all these earlier albums and it's I this and I that and you and uh, for the main part. And then on this album, more of the songs are kind of that she she's not saying I at all. She's like painting these portraits uh, of other people and of characters. Uh, so she's almost taken herself out and there's no real love songs on there. There's no. Yeah, it's very different. It was kind of a very uh, jarring change. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the earlier stuff and the reaction um, to it when it came out was not great like the reviews weren't very kind it was a lot of people basically saying that that they didn't understand the music and couldn't really find the melodies and that criticism has disappeared completely in hindsight and everyone thinks it's amazing now so uh. yeah i mean it's a funny what like and i think that is the thing you know she had got kind of pigeonholed as one kind of a thing which just inevitably happens but i think it happens more in music and particularly kind of quote-unquote popular music that the artist is very much confused with the art and once they've got an impression of what who you are as a person that gets kind of conflated with the music that you're making and if you decide if you'd make something completely different uh, people find it too confusing or it's or it's a kind of capitalist thing it's because you've been marketed in a certain direction and you've got this audience and now you either have to keep giving them what they want which is probably quite boring for any artist worth worth their salt or you go and do what you want and then you're going to lose the audience because you know, everyone thinks Joni Mitchell makes this kind of music and now she's trying to do something different and we're not really down with that. But then similarly, you're not going to pick up a new audience as if you were a new artist turning up for the first time with this new music because everyone's got an idea of what you can and can't do and they want to keep you there and they won't accept this new thing from you. So uh, I think, yeah, I think that's really the thing that got me like the way I got into the album. I, well, I'm, I don't want to like go on too much of a tangent here. Tangents um, are welcome. Tangents are welcome. Okay. So I'll, tr- I'll try and sort of bring it back together at the end. But um, I think it's the bravery of the album or the bravery of her as an artist choosing to do this very different thing that I most responded to. There was that, but there was also just how fucking dense it is. It's like really, we were reading, so we, I was reading at the time, I was reading Alice Walker's The Color Purple at school. Mm-hmm. At the same time as I was listening to this album. And there's one song on this called Don't Interrupt the Sorrow. And the first time I heard it and I was reading the lyrics, I'd sit with the album sleeve and read the lyrics. And I just did not get it. just seemed completely impenetrable, these opaque lyrics about anima rising and, uh, you know, sort of um, your notches liberation doll, all these kind of weird phrases that she was coming out with and this odd language i didn't even know what an anima was and then we were reading the color purple at school and in that book it it goes into animism which you know is this belief that every i mean i've probably have a very limited understanding of it but it's it's a kind of semi-religious belief that every object has a spirit and for example when you burn a piece of wood the smoke rising from the flames is the spirit escaping Mm. from the wood and that you have an animus and an anima the animus is male the anima is female and of course color purple also deals with kind of the african-american experience and slavery and the subjugation of women and when i read the lyrics to this one song on the hissing of summer lawns 
all of that is in there. It's, it's, it's crazy. Like, and she's condensed it down so cleverly into kind of a three and a half minute pop song, all of these massive ideas. So it was like this kind of, um, otherworldly intelligence operating that really, it just blew my mind. I was like this, you know, it was, it was beyond anything I'd you know, heard in music, in popular music or read in lyrics before, uh, the concepts were just so massive. And then the whole album, when you look at it, is all about kind of particularly women and uh, the traps they kind of end up in, in various shades, whether that's sort of, you know, the frustrated housewife or, you know, there's a girl who ends up sort of being taken by a, a pimp in a small town somewhere. Yeah. So they're all, it, it kind of, not only was that one song, you know, this kind of towering artistic and intellectual achievement, but then all of the, the whole album fit together around this theme. And that was just like really crazy to me that a person could could make a thing like that i think and i think also seeing that somebody who's at the peak of their creative powers and popularity can release a work of art that's like not necessarily flipping off the people who've yeah. enjoyed her work before but just saying i am not going to continue to do the same thing the thing that's made me all of this money and you know given me yeah. all this fame because i mean I don't know if she, I mean, yeah, because it came after her most popular album. She never had a number one. She got to number two with Court and Spark. And yeah, it was just, it was a bit like, I'm not sure how much in control of that she was. I'm not sure. I don't know if she really knew what a kind of, uh, or whether she even cared, to be honest, like mm -hmm. uh, what impact it would have on her kind of commercial reach. But it's just this sense that she is operating in the service of something bigger than money or popularity or fame or whatever it is. It's like, I've got other places to go, other things to explore, other things to express, and nothing was really going to stop her doing that. And that to me was really like an admirable move aside from you know all the things that there are to admire in the work just that that step to take as a kind of popular music artist i think was yeah kind of a stunning one really i also there are so many different kinds of musical styles in 40 minutes of music but there's folkier elements and rockier yeah. elements and then the jungle line that has the moog synthesizer on it that sounds yeah way ahead of its time yeah it's like if and if you go from three years before she was still doing the kind of acoustic you know people could still get on board with you know the flaxen head hippie child you know with her acoustic guitar and then three years down the line she's got this like burundi drum like moog looped mashup weird thing mm -hmm. it's just like what it's such a crazy kind of contrast Mm -hmm. uh, that I find kind of thrilling. And I, I hate, yeah, just, it just bores me to, you know, listen to people do the same thing over and over again. So that, and that is one of the, yeah, most extreme examples I can think of of an artist who's just gone and flipped the script. And done it in a way that feels like a progression in her artwork rather than self-indulgence. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think to be honest, like you can actually see if you trace the seeds back, you can kind of see where it's coming from. And for me as an artist, or for, as, a, as a songwriter, as an artist, you know, there's things that she does. It, she, she is a really good with like an extended metaphor. So mm -hmm. here, for example, 
in there's one song called the boho dance which is where she's bringing her so she's talking about the own her own trap i guess as an artist in that she's become successful and then she's getting this kind of like judgment from a guy who is kind of willfully part of the underground but probably secretly would actually like to be as successful as she is but the way she does that she does it all um in the lyrics by talking in terms of clothing uh, so she talks about the crease in in her jeans that she would have had even when she was kind of in the low rent clubs and uh she talks about the virtue of the guy who's having a go at her, the virtue of his style is inscribed on her and his contempt for hers so it's all this language which is kind of about you know it's like an ex- yeah it's an extended metaphor uh, which she did do earlier in her career and which i've tried to occasionally do myself never successfully i don't think but there's some there's some isn't there some like philosopher or somebody who's got a saying about metaphor being the greatest sign of intelligence or the ability to think of one things in terms of another i don't know who that was but she does it a lot like she does it as well as another one where she talks there's all this like fish aquatic language of people getting tangled up in nets and heat waves and yeah it's just very clever but i think also there there's a lot of metaphor but the stories are very clear um yes and I think it's really difficult in songwriting to tell a story without it seeming to tell a story lyrically to to make it so that it makes sense in the song that it's you know it, there's uh, it fits with a melody instead yes. of just being prose or being poetry that well you've got both some- things really well that it's like t- definitely telling a story that's very clear and you can hear the the narrative that she wants you to hear but yeah, also it's a, it's a song it's a you know it it yeah, it's a it's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, I mean, I think like the problem is as a in songwriting is that you have so little space to do it in, and there's not that many people that can get a balance of um, concept, all the intellectuals, all the left brain stuff going in there together with emotion and feeling mm-hmm. and like you say a kind of a, a narrative structure or a kind of a story that doesn't feel forced like I, for example like you could take the song i sometimes think you know that song i am luca by suzanne vega mm-hmm. my name is luca yeah, i yeah. live I think I'm right in saying, God, I hope I'm not going to like totally slander Suzanne Vega here, but I think I'm right in saying that the lyrics there, if you read them out, it's like, uh, my name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think I've seen you before. All good. And then she immediately goes into, if you hear something in the night, some kind of trouble, some kind of fight, just don't ask me what it was. Mm-hmm. And it sounds great in the song, but if you actually imagine that person saying that, you wouldn't immediately go from saying, oh, yeah, hi, we've never met before. If you hear me being beaten in, you know, in my flat <laughs> yeah. by my partner, just don't ask me what's going on. It, it doesn't work. Is There's not enough buildup, but mm-hmm. I can see why. Because you, you're balancing the needs of the music. Where is the music going? With your needs to get meaning in there and get narrative in there and get all your little, uh, you know, if you do have an extended metaphor going on or a concept or whatever, it is it's a really there's a lot going on that you have a lot of plates that you have to keep spinning and also the best thing is if you're not thinking about all that stuff but you're it's your unconscious intelligence that's doing it otherwise it does start to seem labored in some cases yeah yeah striking that balance between uh serving the song structure and telling a story i think is something that she's done really brilliantly and in some songs if there is a story it's like the the metaphors are too there the narrative structure isn't apparent and it needs explanation and with this yes. it's like you can listen to the story and so clearly know what she's talking about even if she's using metaphors yeah 
but the balance is there and it still works as a song and you know has these beautiful melodies and all of this intricacy in the musicianship and the kinds of instruments that she's using and the styles of music that she's using so well done joni well done joni (laughs) so moving swiftly along yeah don't look now which is obviously one of the best films in existence (laughs) i would agree do you um remember the first time that you saw don't look now because i remember i think i was a student and yeah was probably stoned and thought it was like (laughs) absolutely the most amazing thing that i've ever seen and i still kind of feel that way yeah i saw i think i saw bits of it um like on late night tv when i was a teenager Mm. and part of one of the kind of part of the reason that i chose it was that it set up a kind of fixation with venice as a place Mm. Uh, so me and my boyfriend go back to venice every two years for the art biennale that happens there um and yeah if i could live there although it's not the most practical choice i probably would uh i probably would if i could just re-watching it today like it's actually although it's a horror film it's it's really i think it's really again it's something that every time i think i rewatch it i get something more out of and again, it's something that, like the hissing of summer lawns, it's very densely layered, and there's l- so much symbolism in it that you might not even notice the first time you watch it. But then, when there's that final montage, this is spoiler alert uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it. But um, yeah, the final montage where he's he's sort of having a flashback of his life. All of that visual imagery that's been set up is just like flashed at you in this crazy edit. Um, of like the breaking glass and the going into the water and the clouded eyes and then the sort of lake that's um, got the rain on the on it. Yeah, but but moreover, I think it's a really it's a film about loss and you know obviously this couple have gone to Venice after losing their daughter. It always now I look at it, I kind of think is a bit of an odd. If your daughter had drowned, would you really want to be in a city where like you're just constantly faced with uh like water i don't know Mm. i just felt like i mean i i totally agree that it that i think the the real horror i i mean that the ending is horrifying in a very specific way but to me the horror writ large of the the film is the horror of grief and it's like yeah dealing with the repercussions of this terrible terrible tragedy and how profoundly it can affect you and to me the thing that was so like i guess there there is kind of an irony in in living in a city that's basically surrounded by water when you know water's had this terrible effect on your life Mm -hmm. but it also felt like people going to a place that's exactly the opposite of where they lived while this tragedy yeah. occurs, that they could just be, and in some ways, Venice is like another planet. It's a, it's such a unique city that, um, yeah, an alien world yeah. almost. What struck me, what, what I kind of worked out, because I then went to Venice after graduating. I did this like little kind of interrailing two months with a friend of mine around Europe, and then we've gone back regularly. 
and I was watching and I don't look now. I then sort of got the DVD and watched it properly and then rewatched it and rewatched it. And there's all this stuff in there about, um, I don't know if it's like the fault this time I, I watched it and I was a bit like, it's almost like it's, it's a warning against it, but it, there's all this stuff where there's this specific line where it's like, nothing can replace the one that's gone. And there's, a lot of stuff about like the guy, the main guy is trying to restore a church. So he's trying to rebuild something. And there's, there's things where they're trying to replace the mosaics, but they don't quite, oh, when he's doing that, he falls off the platform and nearly dies. And then he's following the little red dwarf woman, um, woman of restricted stature, I probably should say, because he's drawn to her as because he's trying to replace his daughter. He's trying to replace the one that's gone. And then there's sort of things with photographs and drawings, all the things that people do to try and cope with grief or to try and deny that it's that you have lost somebody. Do you know what I mean? It's all these sort of things you try and do to keep somebody alive or replace them or, or go after them. And every time in the film that somebody's doing that, there seems to be this kind of bad thing will happen or there'll be a warning or a... So again, I think it's like incredibly deep piece of work like it, it is really art of the highest order as far as I, I'm concerned mm-hmm. um, that's dealing with something so profound and sad and actually yeah thinking about Venice now like in the last 10 years you know I've I've moved from thinking oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to go and live there or at least I'm going to go and do a project there or something to feeling like yeah it is this place that's probably sinking into the sea and it ties in with the whole you know our situation as human beings with climate change mm-hmm. you know the the level of grief that we've got to deal with in that so yeah it's really it's quite a profound thing that the, the film is is sort of investigating i think mm-hmm. and again that i think that's why it lasts that's why it's something you can keep going back to again and again yeah and the story is so incredible, but also the way that it's filmed and Nick Rogue's visual style across all of the films that he made, but this one in particular is it's just mm. so incredible. Um the the imagery is so striking and I can think you know, thinking of like Donald Sutherland holding his dead daughter in the yeah. it, it feels like a painting in my mind that Yeah, incredible, you know, definitely. Yeah. So very very it's like poetry. Incredible. I think his work is like poetry. The editing of it is like, it's the same thing that I was saying about Joni Mitchell. It's this kind of uh, taking massive themes and taking the symbolism attached to those, all these things that have so much meaning and just packing it in around the story almost. So there's all this stuff going on that you go back to and you're like, that's there, that's there, this is being referenced, that's being, you know, there's echoes of this and echoes of that. Um, But it's all packed in to something that you can just sit back and appreciate on the level of a story or or as entertainment. But there's just so many more levels to it than that. And I think that is, that that's really the big challenge, I think, of artists is to do something that is profound and, you know, takes all of your resources in terms of your intelligence and your emotional digging into your own emotional responses to things and really being honest with yourself but then trying to repackage it in such a way that people who maybe aren't doing that or aren't you know don't have time or the inclination to think about those things that it's not just kind of preaching to them or it's not you've not made something that's kind of boring or ugly or you're kind of giving the sensory stuff and the entertainment stuff and the emotionally provoking stuff but at the same time you've put everything else for those that want to experience it further and go deeper there's all that extra discovery to be done and i think that is yeah what i really respond to in art is when people can manage to do that and also i mean this is 
uh, stuff we were discussing before we started recording. So all of that is uh, <laughs> lost to the ages. But uh, oh, no. what we were talking about uh, with horror films and um, what people considered to be horrifying. And to me, this is so much scarier than, you know, a slasher movie with lots of... Yeah, or like a rubber suited yeah. <laughs> baddie. Yeah, blob monster. Yes. Um, <laughs> but this kind of slow burning buildup of dread that yeah. it's, you know that something, I guess part of it is knowing before the film started that everyone had said, oh, the ending is so amazing and blah, blah, blah. So there's that in the back of my mind. But even with yeah. knowing that, I feel like, you know, the the imagery and the setting and everything about it, just the, the tension is there the whole time and it builds and builds and builds and builds throughout the whole thing. And um, Yeah, there's like a knot in your stomach that you're just like, oh, something bad's gonna happen. What's it gonna be? And then actually, I think when I was younger as well, because I, I definitely used to be a lot more, uh, like for want of a better word, kind of left-brained about everything. I wanted an explanation. I wanted it to be logical. I wanted everything to be tied up with a bow. You know, and I would contrast, for example, like Christopher Nolan films for example, contrast that with, let's say, Stanley Kubrick or David Lynch, who just leave a lot more mysteries. And I'm far, I'm far more on the side of like Lynch or Kubrick now. But certainly when I was younger, I think the first time I watched Don't Look Now, I did sort of feel like I needed an explanation for the ending because I was a bit like, well, yeah, but why? Why, why is there a, a, a small woman in a red coat going around Venice, like killing people and sort of feeling like that's not very realistic. I mean, why, why would she be doing that? And, you know, has that ever happened in the history of mankind? Probably not. But now I'm all up for that kind of stuff. I'm like, it doesn't matter in a way. It's, it, it doesn't, you know, you can look at the whole thing as like an allegory or, and obviously I guess it has like echoes of like fairy tales and stuff like Red, Red Riding Hood. And yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's just there to be experienced and yeah, like, you know, an artist say, oh, I, I don't, um, I don't want to explain it for anybody, you know, that used to really piss me off. I used to be like, no, I need an explanation. But now... I'm totally up for the mystery because I think the mystery is the thing that keeps you questioning and keeps it relevant to you and keeps you alive to the questions in your own existence. Yeah. And um, I think there are definitely situations where in lesser hands, when a director doesn't really know what they're doing with that kind of mystery, it can sure. fail miserably. Yes, um, big time. But this was handled so perfectly. And yeah, it's it's almost like that element of mystery at the end exists outside of the central story. So it's like this thing, you know, the, the fact that he was going to be killed by his obsession with, mm. you know, resolving his grief by trying to find a way to bring his daughter back, kind of. Yes. Um, yes. That it was like, it was inevitable for this terrible thing to happen to him because of all of these, you know, he had all these warning signs, people telling him, maybe not in uncertain terms, but giving him warnings that something bad was going to happen if he kept going down this road. And so the bad thing happening that's like shocking and unexpected and insane and doesn't really make any sense because yeah. at least in the context of what's happened so far, it doesn't really matter because that that thing is it's like random. It and yeah. that's the thing that feels quite real to me is that sometimes when people die violently, 
it's a fluke. It's there's it makes no sense at all. Right. Yeah. Something happens to somebody where they're killed by someone who they've never met before, and yep. it's not a robbery. It's just like some some a crazy person happens to stab them on the street, and it's like there's no sense in it. There's it's this terrible, horrific, tragic thing that happens. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's kind of how I I resolve the weirdness of it in my mind is that it's like the why of that isn't as important to me as everything that's come before. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is, is what makes it horrifying because it breaks it out of what people want generally, particularly, well, most art forms, to, most popular art forms to be, which is a little thing contained in a box that you can just go into and listen to or look at or, or, or watch uh, and then switch off and leave behind and go off back to your quote-unquote real life. Whereas a film like that, really, like you say, the horror is all around. It's the unpredictability and the completely unknowable nature of being alive. And if you let the film or, you know, whatever it is, whatever piece of art it is, if you let it get to you on that level, that's when it's the most has the most impact uh, but i think most people don't in this culture want to engage on that level they that's too threatening so they'd rather complain about the fact that it's weird that there's a dwarf at the end what's that all about doesn't matter <laughs> yeah i feel like we're wrapping up now i feel like yeah it's you gonna... to a natural conclusion how heavily do you edit these things i'm worried about what i've said now i'm gonna i'm gonna ruminate and catastrophize if that's all right with you uh, could you take up the bit where i said this the only bits that I'm going to leave in are the bits where you've uh, said like, oh, uh, ooh, uh, I shouldn't, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so, just yeah, perfect. please do. <laughs> so uh, more importantly, uh, well, importantly, but yeah. not more importantly, where do people find you if they want to find you? People can find me on the internet. Uh, on well, on on and on your local friendly streaming music streaming service uh, would be under my name, which is Owen Duff. Uh, you can also find me on the socials. Usually, I think all of my handles is it a handle or is that CB Radio? Let's, let's <laughs> it's a Twitter, Twitter handle. My handles are Owen Duff Music, all one word, uh, and I even have a website, OwenDuff.co.uk. Uh, yeah, I mean. Or I'm around in East London. If you happen to, you know, be there, you might see me. If you fancy a coffee. <sighs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't really like to leave the house that much. So maybe that's pushing it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So basically what you're saying is if they see you in walking around in East London, look, but don't touch. Keep the fuck away is what I'm saying. Just great. Yeah. <laughs> don't even look, to be honest. <laughs> uh... Oh, God. So, thank you so much for doing this. This was it was very interesting and informative, and I very much appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Bye. Aww, what a lovely man. He is one of my faves. Please check out his music in all of your normal music checking out places. Now, the part that you're all dying to hear, right? The moment you've been waiting for. My arts recommendation, yes! This week... I saw a play on Broadway. Uh, this play is called Burn This by Lanford Wilson. It's a play that gets done a lot. So I wasn't sure that it needed another revival before I saw it. But guys, I was wrong. It's pretty great. 
Um, a really strong cast overall, but Carrie Russell and Adam Driver were both fantastic. So check it out if you're in New York and have the cash to see a Broadway show. And that's what I've got for you this week. Was it enough? Did I give you what you wanted? I hope so. If you're yearning for more, good news. There will be another episode next week. And to tide you over until then, you can follow me on social media at Spark Parade. And you can and should please rate the show and write a nice little review. It can be tiny. Just yes, exclamation point. That's plenty. All right. Until next time. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.